eventually my guide, it was like on the second or third trip we did together, he just put a hand on my chest and he just said, look, you're not the most handsome man in the world. You know, I'm not Brad Pitt. I know I'm not Brad Pitt. It's okay. He's <laughs> the most handsome man in the world, but you're not ugly. And man, it just resonated mm. in the marrow of my bones. I felt like mm. these little explosions were going off right down the middle of me. Something was just letting go. Right. After that, I maybe heard it a little bit for a little while. There was a little bit of a contraction, but mostly it just went away. It was just this hiding place I would go to when I was insecure. In my mind, I'd hear it 10 or 20 or 100 times a day. And then after that, yeah. it just went away, right? But in my experiences of my own healing, that's atypical. And it's more like I would have this big new understanding, this big energetic release. And then afterwards, it would contract in tight. And maybe I'd struggle for a month or two. But then all of a sudden, it would relax open again. And it wouldn't be as tight as it was before. And progress had been made because I'd had a corrective experience of myself. Mm -hmm. That's an important part of the process, this expansion and contraction that happens afterwards. And so many that cheerlead the psychedelic experience don't talk about it because they've never actually gone through it. You're listening to the Tripsitter Podcast, where we demystify substances, break down the science behind them, and discuss the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Like having a Tripsitter watch over your experience, our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your psychedelic journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. Hello, I'm Rowan. I'm a contributor for Tripsitter. I'm Justin. I'm the founder, editor-in-chief of Tripsitter. And I'm James. I'm also a contributor for Tripsitter. Joining us today is a person who's just released a book on healing trauma through the use of psychedelics, which goes through some pretty harrowing, I would say, experiences with psychedelics in the name of self-growth. Some, I would say, hero's journey seems like an understatement in some of these uh, types of events and kind of brings us along on the journey of healing to show us how complex and worth it it all can be. Uh, we're talking today with Shannon Duncan and the book Coming Full Circle. Actually, I'm going to put it on the camera. <laughs> I think it's reversed, so that's cool. But uh, <laughs> anyways, we got Shannon here today. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about about your book and give us just kind of like a broad strokes overview of what you felt like your mission was when you were putting this thing together. Sure. You know, there's a, a lot of people interested in exploring what psychedelics might have to offer. Um, there's a lot of people that are trying to, you know, maybe leave their childhoods behind, stop dragging it around like a boat anchor. There's a lot of people with unhealed wounds, uh, be they veterans from things that happened later in life, or be they people like me that had more things happening earlier early in life. There's all this news about the promise that psychedelics can hold for helping people to heal. And as with pretty much anything that gets let loose on social media, there is just a massive amount of misinformation about it. There's, mm -hmm. you know, people hear yeah. things and it sounds kind of good to them. Then they play telephone game and they change it around in their mind to what sounds even better. <laughs> and then they repeat it as truth and it just gets spread that way. Mm -hmm. So coming full circle is really meant to give an overview of what it really looks like to go deep into trauma. Like if somebody's at a point, they're not wanting to go do a spiritual retreat. They're not wanting to, is fish still a thing? And they're not wanting to do a fish uh, yeah. concert. And, <laughs> they're not wanting to do a fish concert and take some mushrooms. <laughs> None of that is the same. Now, you know, going to a, a retreat in Ecuador or whatever is not going to be the same as doing intensive focused work with psychedelics mm. to honestly have a direct confrontation of yourself and your perceptions of yourself. 
And so that's what Coming Full Circle was really about. It tells my story, but it's not about me. You know, I only included my story in the book to illustrate the points I was making so that somebody could relate to it at more than just on an intellectualized level. Because, you know, go through and you relate to something intellectually, you don't really feel it often. Mm -hmm. At least I don't. I say you in this general way. I speak a lot in absolutes, but I'm just mm -hmm. speaking from my own experience. So that's really what Coming Full Circle is, is I was seeing a lot of the dangers and the pitfalls in the psychedelic healing scene, be it with legal channels, licensed therapists holding space for people, or more commonly, it's in the underground, you know, because this has all been illegal for so long. And that's Honestly, the underground is where the true talent is in most cases, where the real mm -hmm. help is available. But it's also where there is just this tsunami of knuckleheads coming out of music festivals that had big experiences, and now they consider themselves to be a healer or a shaman, <laughs> and they're dangerous. And so I just mm -hmm. wanted people to understand what this landscape really looked like, what it really takes if you want to go deep and heal for real, and not just, you know, they've got these healing communities now around psychedelics, and it's just people avoiding facing their own discomfort by clumping yeah. together in most mm -hmm. cases. And there's very little there, but it, you know, that's kind of how most self-help goes is people get all excited about it and then they start talking about it and the talking about it's more important than the doing it. And, <laughs> um, and coming full circle is a book for grown-ups that are wanting to approach their healing in a grown-up way and do things for real. And they're willing to face discomfort in the process to do it. So that is a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> We're all about Great. long winding answers on this podcast. <laughs> Stretch it out. You really milk it. <laughs> you were speaking to the difference between the intellectual understanding and like the emotional in integrated understanding. In the book, you kind of bring up this three-prong approach to psychedelics between mm. like recreational, expansive, and medicine work. Could you speak a little bit to that in terms of differentiating emotional and integrated experience? Yeah, and you know, I have a social media manager and she posted that exact thing on LinkedIn just recently and a psychedelic facilitator stepped forward in the comments and said, hey, what about ceremonial? Because there are traditional rites of passage. There are traditional ceremonies that have been happening for a very long time in the Native American population, in the South American population. And I had spoken in the book about ceremonial use, but I didn't put it in the list because the list was really for Western mm -hmm. readers. But now I feel like I really left something important out. And so I would add ceremonial to that list. Recreational is what most people are familiar with in psychedelics, right? You go camping, you go to a music festival, you eat some mushrooms or take some MDMA, maybe at a rave or something, and you just have a good time with it. It's about having a trippy experience. And a lot of times you'll get these insights. You'll have these moments of seeing yourself or your life from a different perspective, and it brings some new clarity, and that, that helps facilitate growth. And those are beautiful experiences. Um, back in the day when I would do recreational psychedelics, you know, pretty regular, like once a month or every couple of months with a buddy or some friends would come over and we'd go on long walks and take them. Mm -hmm. I would always check in with myself and say, I wonder what it is I'm going to take back for me from this experience. And those, those are amazing. And then there's mm -hmm. expansive, which is usually more like an intentional spiritual experience or an intentional personal growth experience. And so most of the retreats you'll go to are really focused towards expansive experiences. And again, those are there to have less distractions. So you get 
more of these insights. And it's it's all very cognitive. You know, it all kind of in the body, it's from the shoulders up, you get these expansive mind expanding experiences. And those are amazing. I've had many of those back in the day and I, I grew and learned so much about myself and just garnered so much self-awareness and self-honesty from those. And so when most people talk about the psychedelic experiences they've had where they feel like they've grown and healed, they're talking about expansive experiences. Then there's ceremonial, which we've already discussed a little bit. That's that's really not as common in, in the Western world, uh, but is very prevalent within indigenous cultures. And there's long histories of those ceremonies being used. I can't speak to their efficacy. I can't speak to what they actually do for anyone, but they are they're an important part of those cultures and worthy of being recognized. And then there's what I term medicine work. And medicine work is where you take this expansive psychedelic experience, but you're not just up in your head and you take it down into your body. You take it into your emotional body. You take it deep into your psyche. And the thing I've come around to talking about is like, we all have this door in us. I always, I always relate to it being right around my solar plexus area, but you know, wherever it is for somebody, or there's this door and many people go through their whole lives, never acknowledging it's there, even though it's in plain sight. And when you can choose to open that door, that's when you get into the stuff where the real healing can happen, real enduring, lasting healing. It doesn't go away the next time life throws you a curveball kind of thing. <laughs> and it's not intellectualized. It's at the level of the body. And that door is down into what Jung would have called the shadow realm. The shadows are the, the aspects that your mind or your psyche hasn't has determined are too scary for you to endure, too dangerous for you to endure. Sometimes shadow work is referred to the aspects of the psyche that are um, our caregivers. It's the way the, the society we live in you know, for a very, very long time, people couldn't admit to being gay. It was too dangerous, right? And it was literally life-threatening, but also there was just massive stigma, massive shame. And so a lot of people for a very long time would shadow that aspect of the authentic expression of themselves and wouldn't even admit to themselves that that's what was true. So shadow work, going through that door and directly confronting the reality of ourselves. It's like, okay, this is an authentic aspect of me. And when you can have a direct confrontation, with that, not in a combative way, but just an owning of the truth, then that gets to be released from being a shadow and be an authentic aspect of who you are. And that's how you grow and become more whole and authentic. And really that's the end game for all of this healing is to take these things out of being too dangerous to feel and bring them into an authentic mm -hmm. expression of the self. Yeah. Yeah. I love your chapter on authenticity, particularly the idea of how becoming aware of those extreme emotions and tendencies that we might have kind of like ingrained in ourselves and being able to reclaim them into our lives is a way to kind of, I underlined this one line in here where you said triggers are your gateway into the places that need to heal. And yeah. I thought that was just so powerful because you talk a lot about some of the different triggers that you've had in your past and how they come up and where they come from. And you do a beautiful job of illustrating kind of like the flow of trauma through generations, right? And how we kind of like continue that flow as we go. And how you can look at those unwanted triggers of your personality and instead of trying to hide them away in shame, you can say, I think you you say something along the lines of point to it as a part of one of my personal boundaries where mm -hmm. it's saying, okay, well, this is bumping up against my personal boundaries. So now I need to look at why. And now it's, it's a tool for me instead of something that explodes out of me whenever I can't control it anymore, right? I just think that's yeah. so powerful. And I think you called that the secret sauce. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I thought was really interesting. I wanted to ask because you took psychedelics later in life and that was your first time taking it was later in life, right? You, had you taken it before like in high school or college or anything like that? Um, well, I never went to college. So, oh, right. Yeah, um, sorry. That's right. You were, you were in the military. So I guess uh, not in not. high school. Um, I would have very much enjoyed it if I had. I just, it just <laughs> wasn't something that crossed my path yet. Yeah. But around college age is the first time I ever tried psychedelics. And I, I, yeah. I went over that story a little bit in the book of my friend mm. who came over and gave me a tab of acid and we went for a walk. And that was a really life-changing day for me because it showed me my mind working on a level and in a way that I had never known was possible. Yes. And it was a big pivoting point. I had always considered my life as before that day and after that day. When you first started down this path of self-healing and, and psychedelics, did you think it was going to be a much easier route? Like, did you have some of the, the misguided notions that you're trying to speak to with this book? Did you ever feel discouraged? Like, a point where you're like, oh, this is a much longer road than I ever realized. <laughs> I that, guess That is question. actually a great question. And nobody's ever asked me that particular question in all the podcasts I've done so far. So <laughs> thank you for that. That's, That's um, my goal. Every podcast, I try and get someone to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my early use of psychedelics was in part just for the adventure of it, but it was always with an eye for personal growth because I realized I could learn things about myself that I didn't know before and that that would ripple change into my life. The terminology my friends and I would use is there would be insights and shifts. Mm -hmm. So there'd be an insight and then it would shift something in my life that was different. Mm -hmm. You know, I would see that I was being an angry knucklehead at work and I, I just <laughs> didn't think that was a good idea. I didn't feel good about that now that I could see it clearly. Mm -hmm. And so that would result in me chilling out at work a little more and, you know, and treating my employees a little better, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Those powerful insights, I didn't have a sense that there was some end game that I was trying to get to some place. I didn't, I didn't know, I, you know, I just mm -hmm. knew that when I took this, usually something interesting and good, always something interesting, but mo often something good would come out of it or something that felt good to me. I felt like I was making progress, but I didn't have a sense of any kind of destination, any kind of timeline. It just felt like this is just kind of what you do. Mm. And as far as, you know, the misinformation I talk in the book, I, like so many today, thought that the insights I was getting and how I would integrate them into my life was the whole of what it was you got from psychedelics. Right. I didn't know about going deeper. I didn't know about going through that door. And my psyche kept that door firmly locked. <laughs> and, you know, there were a few times where there were scary moments in psychedelics where it got a little intense. The feelings coming out were a little intense and I would just relax and breathe. You know how when you've had a little too much to drink and you're just really trying to relax your body so you don't go barf, you're just calming yeah. everything down. I would do that, right? I would do that with the psychedelics. I would just be calming myself so I wouldn't have these intense emotions coming up. And I, I you know, hanging out with people and psychedelics, I see them do it all the time. And that's a great thing to do unless your goal is one of deep healing. And in deep healing, you turn and you go in, you turn your sails into the wind, right? And you go into those intense feelings. And those intense feelings are your gateway into that deeper realm. They're your key to get through that door. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until, you know, I, I had played around with psychedelics myself um, and done therapy and I was trying to, I didn't know what I was trying to heal. I just knew that I was pretty dysfunctional. Um, I felt <laughs> like there was a lot that was wrong with me and I was just trying to make the best of what I had. So with therapy and, and self-use of psychedelics. And it wasn't until I did a guided session on 5-MeO-DMT that I got to learn about the door and I got to learn about the kind of access that psychedelics could really give. And not everybody that does 5-MeO-DMT 
and t gets that. You know, I was in and out of suicidal despair in that part of my life. It was 50-50 mm -hmm. on any given week if I was going to make it to the mm -hmm. weekend, and it was just bad. Yeah. That was in part what allowed me to go through that door was there was really nothing to lose at that point. You know, mm -hmm. anything my psyche was fearing on the other side mm -hmm. of that door was right in front of me, given my mood. So that's what allowed me to start learning what psychedelics can really do. And mm -hmm. all the all the playing with insights that I'd done before, while they were powerful, and I'm not taking anything away from those insights, they were splashing in the shallow end of the pool. You know, you still got your little arm floaties on and you're mm -hmm. hanging there, your toes can still touch the bottom. And when you go through that door, you're swimming in the English Channel and there's no shore in sight. <laughs> and there's a storm coming sometimes. And it's learning that you can not only survive that and be fine with it, but it can be deeply rewarding in the work that you can do. And that's yeah. really the difference with doing true medicine work. But at the same time, deeply uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. it, it's very often deeply uncomfortable, but you mm -hmm. learn in going through the process again and again that that discomfort, that edge, instead of trying to avoid it by leaning into it, you're actually allowing yourself to unwind, kind of lancing the wounds and allowing them to heal. And it's the moving away, the avoiding of the discomfort that prevents you to actually heal. And that's where yeah. so many of these healing retreats <laughs> fall on their face because they go so far out of their way to make sure nobody's ever uncomfortable. And it's not a matter of dropping somebody into bad trip territory or forcing somebody through something they're not ready to endure, but the people running it themselves have never really done deep work and they're still afraid of discomfort and so they can't help but push that onto the people that show up they don't want yeah, the people they're avoiding it themselves they're avoiding mm. it themselves and that's one of the big challenges with the psychedelic renaissance right is there's all these people popping up and they're opening churches moving to costa rica and opening retreat centers you know they get their uncle to fund it and <laughs> they've convinced themselves they're doing powerful healing work for people but all they're doing is helping them to hide you know mm. people are going there and having beautiful psychedelic experiences you know if you're in Costa Rica and you can hear the ocean and everybody around you is having a good time it'd be hard not to have a beautiful experience and there's nothing wrong with that but saying that that's the same thing as doing deep healing work is really robbing people of their opportunity to actually heal it's just yeah. there's so many well-intentioned but deeply misguided people entering the psychedelic healing scene and it was that that really prompted me to write coming full circle and it was that that prompted me to come out of my very quiet life to do things like this podcast because normally I just <laughs> my days are pretty quiet I can go days or even a week at a time without really, really talking to anybody and I'm, I'm fine with that that's that's a nice peaceful life for me <laughs> but it feels important to me because if my introduction to healing with psychedelics had been with one of these well-intended folks I wouldn't have gotten anything that I got from it I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to learn to be comfortable with my own discomfort which allowed me to heal and I'm just hoping that I can help others that are ready to do this for real from hitting that dead end. I think it's deeply emblematic of our larger culture of avoiding discomfort of doing everything we can to try and sit in comfort and make sure that we avoid any kind of discomfort, both like physically, emotionally, socially. And yeah. I feel like as the psychedelic renaissance is happening, there's also the, the larger cultural movements that are happening, the larger social movements that feels like we are really coming to a head and confronting all of these really deep, dark things in a way that is no longer longer just surface level trying to kind of just like patch them over and move them down. It's this like collective reckoning of we are all suffering on a very large amount and we have to do something about it. And I think that's really interesting. You know, I, I, parallel. I, 
what I, I don't quite see that part, but maybe I'm just not mm. in the in the strata uh, to see it. Uh, what I see are a lot of people suffering and focusing that suffering on other people as it's their fault. You know, that mm. intense polarization around politics today, just the absurdity of that, the generation of trigger warnings. Everybody should be able to get out of situations that are overwhelming or abusive for sure. But there's just the bubble wrap generation where, oh, you're not allowed to say something that's going to make me uncomfortable. If you do, then you need to be punished. I've heard people say that, you know, people that aren't in line with their political ideology should be put in prison. <laughs> you know, that kind of rhetoric floats around. And that's all just saying, I'm really hurting and I don't want to have to face it. And what you're saying is making me have to face it. And instead of seeing it as a gift, it's like, God, that really triggers me. That's it's, Well, first of all, screw you for triggering me. But, oh, OK, I'm going to go talk to my therapist because this feels like something I could work on. And instead of owning the fact that, you know, if somebody can trigger you, it's because you have a trigger and that trigger mm -hmm. is an opportunity for you to heal and grow. Instead of that, it's like this huge pushback in all directions on all sides. There's no specific group that does this. But instead of just owning that as an opportunity to heal and grow, that's put out as something awful about this other person or awful about this other group. And it's a real shame, right? But what I see is we're in a time of ultimate insulation. We insulate within our political ideologies. We insulate within our personal groups. We insulate, you know, COVID did not help. <laughs> you know, lockdowns around COVID did not help. And everybody is just so deeply, thickly insulated. And I believe that's why we're seeing mass shootings, the kinds of violent outpourings that we're seeing that people are building up inside until they explode out or they find a group where they can boil together until they explode out. And nobody's really doing the work of just owning their own discomfort and owning their own perceptions and taking the opportunity to grow. And I would love to see that shift happen. I'd love to see a renaissance in, in self-awareness and self-honesty. Yeah. It's sort of like what you are saying before, uh, like what you see in others is that annoys you or frustrates you or offends you is sort of a good indication of your own suppressed shadow, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. your own wounding, right? So what we call trauma, I relate to as it was an experience that created emotions that were strong enough that our psyche figured out it needed to protect us from it. It felt like the emotional state could kill us. And they can't. They can suck, <laughs> but they can't kill us. But yeah. then you get these defenses to keep life from triggering those wounds so you don't have to feel those feelings again. And those triggers are your indicators that there's something there, right? The stars you can see around a black hole, you can't see a black hole, but you can see the, the stuff the black hole has pulled in that's shining out mm -hmm. light. You know, triggers are very much that. So when you're triggered, that's a defense of something that you could investigate and learn about yourself and, and possibly heal. And by doing so, you reduce those triggers in the future events. You're no longer triggered by them. Yeah, so much therapy and, and so much psychological work and even expansive psychedelic work focuses on reducing the triggers themselves, but they rarely go deeper to the thing that makes the trigger seem necessary. And one of my things that would get triggered would be anger, right? So life, like somebody would be saying something or I'd have some interaction and it would trigger some deep and insecurity in me. And all of a sudden, all I would know is I was angry and they were wrong. And so my anger would push them back. And so I would be mm. less triggered then, right? I would be righteous and I would be less triggered. And so I could just live in that paradigm of, oh, well, as long as I stay away from people that make me feel that way, then I don't have to get angry and I can do deep breathing and I'm not as angry. But it was when I could go in through the anger, really let this anger out or the sadness out and use that as a gateway to go in that I could start healing the underlying wounds. And as those wounds healed, then anger just kind of went away by itself. The need yeah. for, you don't need a defense when there's not a perceived vulnerability. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned like, this is an out 
outpouring from all sides. Um, mm. So I want to speak on that for a second, just because I feel like this is language mostly weaponized for conservative rhetoric. I feel like a lot of times, you know, and so it's like the the thing I want to point out is sure. the I don't know, I, yeah. when you started saying that, like I immediately kind of tensed up, to be honest, because that's like yeah, that that's happens. my experience of where that goes, you know, is like we're in like the generation where you can't even like make racist jokes anymore or something like that is like my experience of where that goes. And I know just from reading your book and kind of getting to know your story a little bit, that's obviously not where this is going to go. But right. I guess I'm just trying to like talk myself through that right now. <laughs> um, I think it's also important to note, like not all triggers can be solved by going inward and like mm. healing those things because they are social systemic problems that can't just be solved in isolation on one's own. So lots of great stuff there. And I hope you leave this conversation in because it's an important one. So when you start talking about conservative and liberal, mm -hmm. if you back up just two steps, you're just talking about people. Mm -hmm. You're just yeah. talking about human beings and the vast majority of human beings in the United States anyway, do not fit into any of those buckets that the mm -hmm. news would tell us exists, right? The news, mm -hmm. news channels exist to generate ad revenue and people only tune in when they're scared. Mm -hmm. People only tune in when they're concerned. And so there's this, I mean, if we were going to pull anybody out into the town square and flog them publicly, it would be <laughs> the people that run the news organizations because they are causing <laughs> this divide amongst us that is artificially generated mostly. It's the one mm -hmm. that's just building fear and these festering wounds in people. They're just afraid that what's going to happen from the other is going to take away what's important to them. Mm -hmm. I've honestly abandoned thinking about myself as a conservative or as a mm -hmm. liberal or any of that because I don't, none of that speaks for me. None of that fits me. I, I want basic human dignity to be mm -hmm. the basis for which I, I would run any kind of political endeavor. I think that means you're a radical leftist. I don't know, <laughs> depending on what the news would say. Yeah. Um, I just I just don't. I I can under I grew up in rural Oklahoma, so I understand the concerns of a lot of the people that would call themselves conservative. I don't stand strongly on any of this. I just want people to have an authentic expression of themselves and to live the best life they can without being hampered. I'm not for using hate to control people. I'm not for using judgment to control people. Shame and never really just, works for anyone. Shame when you shame someone into trying to change, it just makes them it, double down. It's shame is so toxic, especially with children. But I, the, the point I really wanted to get to was everybody's kind of got their island that they're standing on and they're warring with the other island. And if you just take two steps back, you see you're just dealing with people and the people are scared. Mm -hmm. They've, you know, all of this has gotten so intensified because their chosen source of news tells them constantly that they're under threat from these others. And that mm -hmm. only exists in that news narrative and amongst the very most extremists because most people are just living their lives and they get along just fine with their neighbors. Mostly it's just people. You know, when somebody, let's say that there's a young person growing up and they were teased mercilessly for being homosexual. So they get to college and now any kind of homosexual rhetoric, you know, any bullshit somebody's saying on the news or you pull up an old Eddie Murphy comedy routine that just did not age well at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that triggering is just. But do we ban the old Eddie Murphy comedy routines or do we just say, hey man, we've come a long way since then. And even that triggering is an opportunity to go deep and to heal. Well, as an individual who seems really open to these kinds of discussions and like reframing and rethinking, you mentioned this antagonistic relationship to trigger warning. Yeah. But I think even in this context, wouldn't trigger warnings allow you 
to enter into that space with full knowledge that that's the emotion you're going to experience. And then like preparation for a psychedelic trip, you are doing the prep, you are doing the work to go, I'm going to get into this. You know, if um, in the same way that, you know, in the upper left corner, they put rated R, sexual imagery, racial humor could be one. Mm -hmm. And then you just know what you're walking into because there's movies I don't want to watch because of the content. And then that that is fine by me. When I was talking about trigger warnings, I'm thinking more like, you know, I've watched uh, videos of college students going to be outraged at a speaker and talking about well what just your presence here is injury to me and I'm like is it because it seems like their presence here could be a gift not that you have to agree with them but that you know you're really fragile in here and it's an opportunity for you to examine that and express that and to grow and to become stronger as a human being to where you can disagree with what this person says but it doesn't have to be injurious to you and that's that's really what I'm talking about is is that these things that get triggered these pains that get triggered are an opportunity if you're ready you know there were times in my life when i was not ready <laughs> so i understand not being ready but it's just it's an opportunity to learn and to grow and to become a stronger human and then as a stronger human you know i've i, I just despise cliches but one that i just resonates <laughs> with me so powerfully is be the change you want to see in the world so mm. for me in my own growth i'm just uh, you know that's that's something that can pull me through when things are really hard it's like well i would like to be stronger around this i would like to be more open-minded around this and then just by being that way, maybe that'll rub off on someone else to let them figure their path out for themselves. And so mm -hmm. anything that I feel triggered in me is an opportunity for me to learn more about myself and to perhaps go in there and investigate it and let things heal and grow and become a stronger person for it. And then I'm less mm -hmm. fragile. I'm less wounded by what happens around me. And that allows me to stay strong for other people, to stay strong and come out and give a positive message and maybe help other people to grow also. So I guess there's this idea of like a world sort of saturated in trigger work gives us too many outs so we can avoid the conflicting parts of ourselves or the, the things that conflict with our own kind of narrative. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, when it feels right, right? You know, somebody could be in a verbally abusive relationship and they could, you know, stick it out so they could learn and grow from it. But I would probably choose to get out of that and then mm -hmm. take what I learned about myself from that, about what took me into that abusive relationship. I'm not blaming the victim, but just, you know, what were the choices I made that led me to do this where I can learn and grow and I can make different choices for myself going forward. You know, it's not always possible. I could get hit with something as soon as we get off this podcast that's more than I can deal with and I need to go sit down somewhere and feel sorry for myself for a while or angry for a while but eventually I'll pick myself up and dust myself off and just do my best to figure out what that was about but what was that about in me how did I yeah. interpret that what is the meaning my mind gave to that what were the feelings that it triggered that brought about those very uncomfortable feelings reminds and me of the Ram Das story like if I find out that your spouse is cheating on you and I go and tell you about it and you get mad at me then that tells me that you already knew and were hiding it from mm. yourself because yeah, your reaction kind of should have been shock yeah. not being mad at me for informing you that tells me that you already knew like the other one that i've mentioned before from him is how you treat me is your problem and how i react is mine exactly and that. so it's like you Just know that. i do hear what you're saying of saying like if that person's existence is triggering to you then you can take that as a way to also start looking inward and saying what about it is triggering to me where's this fear or anger coming from but also i think like to rowan's point sometimes it is systemic and that can be difficult to navigate but mm -hmm. even when there's systemic problems around us and, and we can't make our life perfect i think that your book really shows that it's an ongoing journey it's just about trying to make it better each day make your life 
and the world around you better each day, doing what you can to try to bring about unity instead of division in yourself and around you. And that is that is the self-work. It's not that working on yourself saves the world. Maybe if we all did, it would save the world. <laughs> <You are part laughs> but it's right. not that working on yourself solves systemic problems or, or whatever. But working on yourself is the first step to changing the world because, you know, like you say, how are you going to be a, a psychedelic medicine guide if you haven't done that inner work, if you haven't already gone inside? So if you haven't already brought that unity in within yourself, how can you do that work of bringing it in in the world around you? I don't know. That's hard because we also just had a talk with Dr. Devineau where she was talking about how that is also like a way to keep us from doing the work around us before we finish the work inside. And obviously, you know, you can work mm -hmm. around anyways. You can do both. Yeah, exactly. You can do You both. know, it all comes back to my favorite cliche, be the change you want to see in the yeah. world. So if yeah. I were with friends and walking through the park and there was some group set up and they were spewing hate speech, I would not like what they said, but it would never occur to me that I needed to battle them about it just because I'm above it. But it also wouldn't be about you though, right? I it, think that's the important part. Like it's not targeted about you. You know, they could hate middle-aged bald guys with all their hearts. <laughs> They could. And, you know, that would be fine because they're not resonating at the level that I'm resonating at. I see them as hurting delusioned people and I'm not going to engage with them because I'm not going to empower them. I'm just going to live my life not at that level. I think my problem with that thinking, though, is that it does remove us from this responsibility that we have okay. because like we're talking in this theoretical level yeah. the people who maybe would be talking against bald middle-aged white guys would not have the systemic power to enact violence upon the entire group of bald middle-aged white guys yeah yeah you're right it's a, it's a silly example and hate groups can be dangerous and they do need to be controlled so that they're not hurting others. You know, that's one of the things we do in our societies. We're not allowed to hurt other people. It's just hard. You know, a, a big part of that, again, is coming from this illusion of division that's been forced upon us. And, you know, mm -hmm. those those groups are a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the population. People who would actually be outgoingly hateful like that. But they're given a stage in the media and all of a sudden, that's what we think is out there. I don't need to engage them. And if they were actively trying to hurt somebody, I would do my best, whatever I can do to stop that. I would, I, you know, mm -hmm. they were actively trying to act on what it is they're talking about. There's, there's very little I wouldn't be willing to do to stop them. You pick your battles and you're careful what you empower. Mm -hmm. When we give too much energy to groups that are being hateful, it's easy to start losing sight of the fact that these are just a handful of people. <laughs> they really are. The more power they get, the more press they get the more people who have this unhealed anxiety this anxiety they don't know where to put it they can start you know aligning with this group because it gives them a way to vent their angst right it doesn't really matter who it's at it's just the one that they happen to land on and it's just there's there's so much opportunity to grow by rising above and not existing on the level of these and you let them die on the vine the rising above part is the only part that i disagree with because okay. i don't think it comes through rising you're, you're allowed to. yeah i don't think it comes through rising above i think it comes through solidarity and coming together on the level that we're at. So like, it's not about being like, oh, I'm rising above and I'm just operating at a different level. Not like that. But I think that's the language though that we need to be careful of. Yeah, not in a spiritual bass kind of way. It's, <laughs> boy, I was at uh, San Diego Gay Pride one year with some friends and the uh, Westboro Baptist folks were there picketing mm -hmm. and people were going by and yelling at them and flipping them off. And I just, you know, man, they, I gave them no more consideration than if
if I'd stepped in dog shit. I just, it's just <laughs> like, just something I need to scrape off my shoe. It's a bad taste. I need to get out of my mouth. And that's exactly what I mean. But you were at pride. You were in the solidarity with the community around you. Oh, sure. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's the part that I'm like, think is most important. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that we, you know, you shouldn't stand with people you agree with. Nothing like that. It's just, I, yeah. I, boy, I, I kind of hate that we've wandered into these weeds because yeah. it, it has nothing to do with the book, but it's, uh, yeah. I think it's an important topic and I'm happy to, you know, whatever my opinion's worth, I'm happy to share it. God, I remember uh, when uh, gay marriage was on the ballot in California and my daughter was in middle school and we went out and we, you know, because we lived at the time near the gay center of San Diego, Hillcrest. Mm. So we went out and we did the long walk with people and everybody had their signs and we just felt like it was important because it's like who's my whole thing was whose business is it who who cares but i think that like, i think it is integrally tied to your book the self-healing absolutely the self because you can't yeah, you but... can't be in community with people unless you and the people you are with are working on that healing together because these are kinds of yeah i agree with community you. level with pains you. yeah but that's just a little different than being constantly offended constantly outraged it's just the outrage culture i guess is more where i was leaning towards it doesn't help anybody look inward at your outrage and then as you're healing look at what positive things you can do to make a difference because just just the clashing, the meeting hate with hate, the meeting anger with anger doesn't get anywhere. And that's mm -hmm. that's all I was trying to say. But really, I don't normally talk <laughs> on these kind of topics. <laughs> yeah, I see that. In the back of my mind, I just keep hearing danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> it's like it's so easy for things to go off the rails. After this, I'm going to go back to a question okay. about the book. First of all, this has been, I think this is so cool when we have people on who are willing to openly discuss things and have these conversations. It is radically uncomfortable for people mm -hmm. to be open to having a conversation about these things and I yeah. thoroughly appreciate it. I personally kind of feel like rising above and solidarity can be kind of similar things. Like I kind of yeah. feel like solidarity is Absolutely. like how we rise above. I loved your language of being careful what we empower. And I think if we're rising above being careful what we empower, the way we do that is through solidarity and through understanding these are not beliefs that we tolerate or we believe in basic human dignity for all you know yeah. that is that is solidarity and that is also rising above the division that we've had instilled upon us it all runs so deep i don't know that's do you do you agree with that row because i don't want to put words in your mouth <laughs> i think um i agree i think there is a lot of connection between these ideas i think that yeah. honestly it is a whole book's worth of ideas yeah, yeah. yeah. and like four white people on a podcast are not going to solve this answer like that's yeah, just that's fundamentally fair. just yeah, not going to happen that's fair. and so i think it's good that we had this discussion because i do think that like we were just mentioning with dr devino i don't know if you got the opportunity to hear that podcast shannon like just confronting this idea of like okay well what do i believe to be true about this world like even what you're saying right now with, with trigger warnings with rising above i had a lot of contention with some of the things that you were mentioning mm -hmm. and in doing so wanted to sit back listen to your thought fully before I responded yeah. see what aspects of it I did agree with what I didn't agree with what your intentionality is behind saying it because that's also something I think a lot of people don't consider and making sure that we're having these conversations to be like let's confront these ideas what do we mean by rising above what do we mean by trigger warnings what do we mean by confronting that within ourselves and what does that look like because the more we can detail those things and pin them down the better we can do it within ourselves and like within our communities mm. 
And honestly, uh, Rowan, when you talk about listening and trying to understand intentionality before having a response, that is what I mean by rising above. Mm -hmm. Instead of just these knee-jerk reactions, just instead of pure reactivity, there's careful consideration. There's mm. there's thought. And it's like, yeah, these people are saying things I don't like, but is me engaging them going to help anything? Is that, you know, or mm -hmm. are they just scared? Yeah. And are these just scared human beings who, with a shift in perspective, would be somebody I might like? Let's just set aside what they're saying and it's why are they saying it? And nine times out of 10, they're scared. But I can have compassion for a fearful human being that's acting in a way that I don't think is entirely right mm -hmm. because that means that they could learn. You know, there's people I've been intensely angry at in my life <laughs> who, you know, later in life come around. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting off into the weeds again, man. I'm just, I, I agree with you. I don't think we're at odds on any of this. And it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, I'm speaking from my experience. So I'm using language that resonates with me and that language mm -hmm. when it hits your ears, maybe has a little different meaning. And that's always the challenge. And so I really appreciate you, you know, letting me spew on about my <laughs> point of view. We kind of went in this direction and I just shared what I think. But it, like I said, when we first started, it's just, it's just my perspective. Yeah. And my perspective is almost always open to evolve and change and grow. And it's, it's, it's not about controlling or dominating or telling other people how to think or feel. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the challenges in the world. And I think that the, if we can step back and see the others as actually our neighbors and people, and they're just scared and they've been made scared by forces outside of themselves, like, you know, what's piped in their mm -hmm. brains through the news media and through social media, we can have some compassion for them too. And that changes the narrative. It changes, you know, that compassion is the rising above. Mm -hmm. And that's really all I meant by it. Yeah. Uh, to bring it back a little bit to psychedelics, how does psychedelics or uh, the psychedelic experience help one to identify these triggers or these fears in ourselves so they stop unconsciously controlling us Great segue. Way. <laughs> <laughs> back, back on safe ground again. I'm feeling less like I'll be canceled. Soon. Actually, sorry, can I, can I real quick just read a passage that's relevant and, and plays really well into that from your book? Sure. In here you wrote, uh, the anger that I would sometimes project onto other people in situations had always been this anger I felt towards myself. Once I saw this clearly, I understand that what others had projected onto me as a child also wasn't about me, but rather their own feelings about themselves. I had already understood this from an intellectual perspective for quite a while, but it was only when I felt the truth of it from that wounded place, when I could feel it in my bones, that I could allow myself to start the releasing process and true irrevocable healing began to happen. Mm. Well, it sounds so good when you read it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I wrote I'm that? Like, I, I put that back to me. It sounded good when I read it too. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was definitely my experience. You know, it's one thing to have an intellectualized understanding of a conflict, an intellectualized understanding of the self, but it's it's when you can go in and you have that direct somatic experience that real wisdom starts to come through. And when I can relate something, I'm going to stop saying you the best I can. I'm not talking about you, but just <laughs> us. We got you. Us, we. <laughs> when I can understand something from that level, it gives me a great deal of compassion for other people that are maybe going through the same thing which is pretty much everything we just spent the last hour or whatever it was <laughs> talking about, right? It's it's having an understanding that there but by the grace of God goes I. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that that's the thing. We're all just people. We're influenced in different ways and 
clearly there are dickheads in the world. They just, <laughs> right? And, and they're, they're always going to. There are people who are born psychopathic and their mm-hmm. nature is always going to be one of, you know, trying to dominate and control others. That's just the animal that that is. Um, but I can understand. I can understand this is how this person functions. But most of us aren't that. And so most of us are operating based on how we were raised, some genetic predisposition towards certain kinds of attitudes, being more courageous, being more fearful, that kind of thing. Generational energy getting passed down. But, you know, for the majority of people you encountered, how they are showing up is not based on any choice they ever made in their life. It's just Mm -hmm. all the influences that came together on that being. This is how it's manifesting. And so hating them for that is pointless. Mm -hmm. Uh, Giving some compassion might open up an opportunity for them to have self-awareness and growth and for them to express themselves differently at some point in the future. And they're really all the winding stuff I said before really comes down to that. It's just, mm-hmm. it, we're just people. We're, we're mm-hmm. all just people. There, there is no other except as it's artificially created. Yeah. If I have any message about any of this at all <laughs> is that. It, we're all doing the best we can with what we got. Yeah. We're, we're working with what we've got and Fear and shame are the prime motivators. Underneath mm-hmm. it all, when you get fearful for what you have and who you love, you'll do all sorts of nutty stuff. You'll go to extreme measures. And the more that that fear is fed, especially through the news, the more intense that becomes and the more radical the actions they'll take. But that's, again, that's a minority. That's a tiny fraction of the population. Because when I go out and walk walk around the little town I live in, there's people who you know see themselves in all different ranges of the political spectrum but they'll shake my hand and have a conversation and they're perfectly lovely people, you know, regardless if I agree with everything they think and believe or not. While we're here, I had a deeply profound experience. I protested a significant amount in 2020. Okay. And then on January 6th, 2021, did mushrooms. <laughs> did not know what was going to happen. Was it your first time? No, it was not my first time. Definitely not. Okay. Thank God. Thank <laughs> God it was not. That would have been a rough trip. But I was alone <laughs> in the middle of the woods in upstate New York while all this was going on. And these are people who, again, are just people, but are on the furthest end of the political spectrum from where I am. Yeah, that's the hardest. Yeah, but there's this moment, especially on shrooms, in which I noticed this profound similarity of seeing these videos, of seeing these people screaming of righteous anger, thinking that what they're doing is going to be saving the world from this evil. And there was a moment where I went, oh, I know that feeling. I've been there. I've been in that experience. And that deeply profound understanding of like, oh, Fuck. And I think that kind of gets down to what we're talking about. Exactly. Like it is this psychedelic unity of like, oh, these feelings are universal. These experiences are universal. But the way that we have been filtered through our different classes, through our different races, through our different sexualities. The context. Exactly. Context context is everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to get, um, you know, some of the extremists together on both sides and set them down with some MDMA. Have everyone wear them. mittens. Have everyone <laughs> you know, shock collars. It. MDMA brings its own mittens, right? <laughs> do a big ass dose of MDMA and talk things out and I bet everybody sitting there would have a profoundly different perspective coming out the other side. Just yeah. the opportunity to get outside of your own fear, the notions that you have of the people that you fear and see them from a different perspective and you just start yeah. seeing that they're just people yeah 
trying to figure it out and they're put under immense pressures just being fed these i need more compassion about the news why is the news so triggered i would think it was this contrived news that uh, just <laughs> seeks to control to keep people upset enough mm. to tune back in and keep their average revenue going that to me is at the heart of the majority of what we're dealing with in the united states today it's all ted turner's fault we're triggered by ted turner everyone <laughs> rupert murdoch yeah for sure <laughs> let's keep going <laughs> all right justin you had a question in regards to the book <laughs> yeah so where does the psychedelic experience or psychedelic substances come in to helping one identify these yeah. triggers and these fears instead of reacting to them unconsciously boy there's layers and layers to that right so <laughs> it, it, at first it starts with a willingness to be self-honest even if it's uncomfortable i kind of like rowan's experience you know, that fuck moment. It's just like, oh, that, that, that hurts, right? It hurts. It hurts to say that, oh God, okay, yeah, maybe I'm being as intense as the people I'm upset with are being intense. It hurts to own that. So there's this willingness to be self-honest where it's more important to be self-honest than it is to be right. And that's really one of the keys. And then there's the willingness to go through discomfort and go through the humbling process of like, oh God, all my opinions, those were about me more than they were about this. And just whatever it is for the person, right? I'm just giving examples based on my own my own process. Mm -hmm. Having to uncling myself from my opinions and uncling myself from perspectives I'd carried my whole life. And it, if people were more interested in being self-aware and growing and, you know, and you start with that first and then you take that into the psychedelic experience, then the psychedelics can help you in that way. They can help you to deepen that self-awareness. They can help you to deepen that self-honesty. But the clear intention needs to be there going into it. But then I guess in like Rowan's example, it was almost a spontaneous realization of that. Like, I don't think you went into that mushroom trip saying, I want to empathize with these people around me. That I So that's the powerful insights that I talk about in recreational use or expansive use. There's this moment of clarity. This is like, oh, fuck, you know, moment, right? <laughs> Those come powerfully, especially if you can get away from other people and you're in the woods. What a beautiful experience, right? Totally. Challenging, uncomfortable, but powerful, right? You took something mm -hmm. back from that. You obviously took something back from that. And that's a powerful moment of growth. And if we were going to move into what I call medicine work and somebody wanted to take that new insight, that new understanding and go deeper, you would be working with somebody who's qualified to hold space for that. So you stay safe and you can really let your guard down. You don't have to monitor yourself so much. Mm -hmm. So you're in a good location. You feel private. You feel safe. You're, you're trusting the person you're working with to hold that space for you. And so then you would take that feeling that, you know, in Rowan's example is that, oh, fuck feeling. <laughs> and you would open it. You would expand it. You would breathe mm -hmm. in into it with the psychedelics. You're like, you're imagining allowing the psychedelics to work down into there and open it and expand it. And you start seeing what's in it and what's underneath it and what's underneath that and what's underneath that. That's where it really starts getting some traction. That's where the growth really starts happening. Yeah. Yeah. I won't spoil the revelations of the final section of your Thank book, you. but <laughs> I will say that it was after a tremendous amount of medicine work before you realized a major root issue with a lot of your problems in life. It took a long time. How long did it take you to get to that point before you made that major realization? Well, it started coming out maybe six or eight months in, doing it almost monthly. Mm -hmm. But then it continued to come out over the next several years. And, you know, and, and we can we can speak about about it very generally.
the book is coming full circle and it's written in a way that you kind of keep circling like I did and gaining understandings and then the coming full circle is at the end when it came back to myself and it's like, oh, it all makes sense to me now. Why I had this intense depression, why I struggled so much, why I was so suicidal. Again, it's this thing that's in plain sight, but I just couldn't admit it. And, um, you know, it came back to early life sexual abuse and I'm, I'm fine talking about that and, you know, we'll leave the, the more detail that makes the book make sense for the for the reader to discover on their own, but I had no conscious idea that that was the thing. And mm -hmm. as it was trying to come out in these psychedelic sessions, I'd be going, no, 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 no. And I didn't even know what I was saying no to because I didn't want to admit that this was a true thing. And so again and again, I would go in and finally the dam broke. And it's like, wow, it all makes mm -hmm. sense now. It all makes a lot of sense why I was suffering in the way I was suffering because my brain was trying so hard. My psyche was trying so hard to protect me from this information that it deemed too dangerous for me to know. It was going to be too painful for me to know. And so that was the process. I think that that's so important and impactful because so much of our most traumatic events in life, especially something like any kind of abuse in childhood, it's so hard for us to face it that a lot of times it gets locked so deep within us. And the medicine work that you do is, uh, I, I felt like I was on the edge of my seat reading some of your, your stories. Like I was watching like an action movie sometimes. <laughs> like, like uh, there was this story that I'll just kind of briefly summarize where you had finished up a session with, I believe it was MDMA and ketamine, and then had gone back and felt like there was more for you to explore and wound up exploring these extremely difficult topics on your own after an exhausting day because you were just like, I need to know where these dark emotions are coming from, where these dark somatic experiences live, and I need to be able to flesh them out, bring them into the light and get rid of them. And it's incredibly impactful, but I, I also wonder a lot of people are struggling with this kind of trauma, or obviously almost everyone has a form of trauma, I feel like. And a lot of people aren't necessarily going to be in a place emotionally or, you know, maybe even financially to be able to do this kind of medicine work. Another great question. What, yeah, what do you think an average person who, who can't necessarily afford a retreat can do with this experience? You know, I don't think that you would recommend this medicine path for everyone, I would imagine. No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> what would be your recommendation for others? Well, there's layers of stuff to unpack there. And so first, I'd just like to clarify that I don't view the feelings in myself as dark or bad or wrong. I view mm -hmm. them as a wounded aspect of a younger part of myself. And oh, I give them hell compassion. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. And I never try to get rid of them. You don't get rid of these things in yourself. But the things that are held as separate, the wounded parts, can come back into to the whole of you. And so I feel mm. more fulfilled. I feel more complete. Mm. I feel more authentic as these parts heal. So that I'm really welcoming them home. Mm. Um, yeah, and doing deep solo work is something I only started after having a lot of experience doing guided work. And I could hold my, no matter what kind of emotions were coming up, no matter how intense, I was always aware. I was always conscious. And I've developed the ability that I can let go into the medicine work experience, or I can, no matter how high I am, no matter how I've been on eight grams of mushrooms. Oh boy. <laughs> and I can turn around, sit up, look you in the eye and have a conversation, or I can let go and just disappear into it. And I have the choice over that. That's wild, and that takes yeah. a while That's to really develop. Cool. I don't know that everybody ends up developing that. So it's, for me, I feel very safe working solo. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine a scenario where I would get out of control or be a danger to myself. Mm -hmm. So I certainly don't recommend that for everyone. And a beautiful place to start this kind of work outside of using 
psychedelics is with body-centered therapies. Mm -hmm. So there's one called Hycomi, which is really well developed. Yeah, you wrote about that in the book. I like that. Yeah, a lot. and Hycomi is readily available to most people. And then there's also Somatic Body Experiencing mm -hmm. by Peter Levine, and that is a very powerful way to work, and that gets you in touch with these parts. You learn how to navigate yourself. And I actually, in the book, I recommend this to anybody considering doing deep psychedelic work. Start with a body-centered therapy because it gives you the tools you need to be able to feel safe and navigating this inner world. Whereas if you just go into a cold, it can be it can be a lot. <laughs> you know, when you open that door and you start letting out really intense feelings, you need to know that you're safe in doing so that you can internally take a step back and observe it rather than being completely consumed by it. Mm -hmm. So anybody desiring to do deep trauma healing work, I highly recommend the body-centered therapies and finding somebody really, really good and really experienced. Anybody can offer Hikomi. Anybody can offer um, somatic body experiencing. I recommend a trauma-informed, very experienced therapist who also offers these over somebody doing these sessions out of their garage because it happens, right? And so just because yeah. somebody's a somatic body experiencing therapist doesn't mean that they're a licensed therapist that's been trained in psychotherapy. So it's important to know the difference. Mm. Have you ever heard of internal family systems? You know, I have, and I've heard really good things about IFS. The point where it was introduced to me, I already had a rich narrative for how I interacted with my inner world, which is what I describe in the book. I see these yeah. parts as younger aspects of myself and they have their own feelings and their own thoughts. It's just a way of relating, right? It's all just a fog in there. <laughs> you just, you know, you're just trying to make out shapes in there and it's so you have some way to work with it. Um, I've heard beautiful things about IFS, but I don't have any direct experience with it. Yeah, it's the, it's the primary mode of therapy, like the modality that I utilize in my own work. And it, the way you speak about therapy is kind of the same language, is like these parts within yourselves that have different jobs from different aspects of your life, yeah. especially in terms of when you're talking about these shadow parks. In IFS, the language utilized for them is exiles. They have been exiled from you for whatever reason. Yeah. So for anyone listening, trying to look for that, that's also a potential avenue to go down. If this language is resonating. Yeah, that yeah. works for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see what works for you. I, a lot of people really like IFS. And if that's something that lets you have communication with those parts, then that's all you need. Mm -hmm. And once yeah. you develop some skill and confidence in navigating your own inner world with body-centered therapies, then expanding that out with psychedelics is a safer possibility, especially if you're doing retreat work, which I'm not a big fan of retreat work for processing trauma. Retreat mm -hmm. work to me is if you want to go and have an expansive spiritual experience, maybe you're taking some friends. People do deep work there sometimes, but it's usually unintentionally. <laughs> um, but working one-on-one -on -one with a really qualified guide, a deeply qualified guide is the way to really get into trauma and feel safe doing it and not be further traumatized in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something I never really realized before your book was that psychedelics really, we think of them as being therapeutic tools, but they're really so somatic. We just had Catherine McLean on who wrote her book about coming to grips with trauma and death using psychedelics. And she talks throughout the book about different times where she realizes there were pains within her that were the result of trauma in the past through psychedelics. And I think it's something that we overlook in most of our psychotherapy a lot of times because we mostly focus on the mind and we don't think about the fact that we do store trauma in the body and we do carry it with us a lot of times in different expressions that we might not even, you know, like when I'm anxious, my back hurts. And it's because I spend all oh, day yeah. tense. You know, mm -hmm. that's an easy example of showing it. Right. Yeah. But I think that's so important.
I wanted to talk about your second section too and start talking about people who are looking for a guide because you have some really great tips in this book for how to handle that. And I wanted to start by talking about the different types of psychedelic facilitators that you bring up. Trip sitters, psychedelic facilitators, coaches, guides, medicine guides, and psychedelic therapists. And I wanted to also start with this quick Quote, I had it explained to me this way. Imagine that you had tooth pain steadily increasing for years and it finally got so bad that you went into an oral surgeon to get a root canal. Afterwards, you felt the best you'd felt in a long time. You realize how a lot of other people must also be in pain and you'd love to be of service. So you go online and buy some used <laughs> dental equipment, read a few books and watch some videos. Then you put out some ads and start offering root canals out of your spare bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> That is such a great comparison because it, it feels like surgery a lot of times in psychedelics. Like you come out of it so exhausted, like you just went through this operation, you know, like people are just so eager to get somebody to guide them because especially if you're dealing with these dark emotions, it can be such a scary experience that they just think, oh, this person says they're qualified or like this person has had a trip or two. They can they probably seem very spiritual. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, that's the big one, right? They always that's seem the spiritual. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the different avenues you can go for for finding a person to watch over your psychedelic trip and then some of the red flags that you mentioned you can look out for. So when you want psychedelic support, you know, the, the old school standard is a trip sitter and that's somebody who's just sober and they're there to help keep you safe and to talk you down if you get too wound up and to change the music if they need to calm things down and, you know, being a trip sitter is a noble, noble He said it. He said the name of the podcast. <laughs> being a trip sitter is a uh, or on a trip sitter podcast is a noble thing <laughs> and it's an important thing and i think that a great many trip sitters could stand maybe a bit more education on what not to do because some will end up trying to play therapist trying to put their own opinions in on whatever the person's processing instead of just holding an open space um, but trip sitting isn't for processing trauma you know trip mm. sitting is for holding space for somebody that just wants to have a psychedelic experience and they want to feel mm -hmm. safe and they want to be able to let their guard down so having somebody there to keep an eye on them is very reassuring and it's powerful. It's a safety guardrail. It's a safety guardrail. Yeah. It's a smart thing to do. You know, maybe the trip setter's got a Xanax in their pocket for just in case <laughs> that kind of thing. A trip right. killer. <laughs> <laughs> so trip setters are one thing, but with the psychedelic renaissance, with this new interest in psychedelics, with Burning Man, with all these things, we're getting people, especially very young people that go and they have a big experience on psychedelics and they think that that's what the sum total of big experiences on psychedelics is <laughs> so they feel qualified to start offering this service to others but it's really more about them feeling special and powerful and like they found their life purpose it's really about them and what they offer to somebody that they sit for in a therapeutic setting is a pale shadow, even a dangerous thing compared to what's actually possible in qualified hands. And so in the book, I take great pains to discern between what's a recreational experience with a trip sitter versus what's a facilitator that's holding a retreat. What should they be qualified to hold space for? What kind of education should they have had and experience should they have had? And I talk about uh, psychedelic coaches, which is a lot like a life coach where you set intentions for changes you want in your life and then you carry that into the psychedelic experience and then you look at the insights that come up and then you can work with those insights after. That's a beautiful experience and that's what mostly passes for psychedelic healing kind of work. <laughs> and then there's psychedelic guides who get more into going through that door, going into a deeper space, but not specifically trying to hold space for trauma like I had, trauma mm -hmm. like maybe a veteran has. And then there's medicine guides 
guides, and I just, I made up this term. It's just what, what resonates for me. There's medicine guides who are deeply educated in psychotherapy. They're deeply educated in dealing with trauma. Might not be a licensed psychotherapist, but they have done the work to understand what they're working with for real. And most importantly, they've done their own deep work. So they're not bringing their shit into your session because I've had the experience of, I will go in someplace deep. It's triggering for the person that's sitting there and they close off. Their mm -hmm. voice changes, their posture changes, their whole energy changes, and it dramatically affects the session. It dramatically affects my ability to do healing work. And that's why this medicine guide level, having done their own deep work, is so essential. It's just yeah. as important as being trauma-informed. Mm. Specifically with the substance they're working with, right? Absolutely. Well? Any yeah. Anything that they're offering to sit with, they need to have deep, deep experiences so that they can always, not intellectually, but energetically, have an understanding, have empathy for where this person is because you know if you've yeah. never taken mdma and you're sitting with somebody taking mdma you have no idea what they're going through yeah understanding yeah. what receptors it binds to it has no impact on how on the nuances of, of, yeah. of what None. the medicine if you doing. if you haven't been there and understand the overwhelming urge to tell whoever's around you how much you love them <laughs> you're not going to understand why they're saying that to you and where they're coming from and how that can mm -hmm. be gently guided back to them going back into themselves mm -hmm. you can't possibly yeah. understand you're on the outside looking in and so so mm -hmm. they need to have done the deep work in themselves. They need to have worked with the medicines that they're offering, whatever that is. And then there's psychedelic therapy. And this, this takes a, a, a variety of forms. There's the modern clinical trials, which are evolving and changing, but they tend to be in the, in the therapists that offer that. Every single one of them say, we're so shackled by red tape. Mm -hmm. We can't offer it in the way that we really know that it should be and want to. And so there's benefit to be had with legally sanctioned clinical trials work. I'm not going to say that somebody shouldn't do it if it's available to them, but just also know that what's offered from competent sources in the underground is dramatically different and it can take you to a deeper level. Mm -hmm. But then there's a, another kind of psychedelic therapy where you take low doses of like ketamine or MDMA or mushrooms and it's more conversational. And it's really mm -hmm. about those things enabling you to open up so that more traditional therapy can be more effective. And that is a really powerful way to work and a very safe way to work. And yeah. if that's available from somebody that's competent and qualified to offer it, like they've done it themselves, they know what they're doing, that can be a great way to work. And that can be a great doorway into going and doing the even deeper somatic releasing work that medicine work has to offer. Yeah, I know of one group right now that's studying low doses of DMT during therapeutic sessions. DMT or 5-MeO-DMT? It might be 5-MeO, I'm not positive. So those two get confused a lot. So mm. DMT or NNDMT is an intensely visual experience. And people mm. do seem to get insights from those that they find helpful. 5-MeO-DMT is a completely different animal. And actually yeah. my story of my first time with 5-MeO-DMT in the book, I thought what I was getting was NN-DMT and I was going to go to fantastical landscapes and talk with magical elves. And that's what you do on DMT. <laughs> Instead you got sucked into the void. I got ripped apart at the atomic level. <laughs> <laughs> but low doses of 5-MeO-DMT can be deeply opening without the overwhelm and just allow a motion to come through and it can allow somatic releasing to come through. You know, if you're going to work even with low doses, you want to have a, some kind of a bucket handy. <laughs> yeah. the purging, energetic release through purging is really common with five. But um, mm. so that kind of work is also really powerful and has a lot of potential. And for some people, it might be all that they need to get their therapy moving forward. Mm. But when you're really stuck, like I was really stuck and you've got stuff that
that your psyche does not want to let you into, then true deep medicine work is something that might be of profound help. It is not mm -hmm. the easy path. <laughs> it's not even anywhere close to the easy path, but I am so grateful for having been introduced to it and having gone through it. It has changed my life in such amazingly profound ways. Yeah. Through my 30s and 40s, suicide ideation is just what I clung to, mm -hmm. to going and pushing up near the edge. And some days it's all I thought about and it never crosses my mind anymore. That's beautiful. It's just not something that needs to happen. I don't need to hide from what I'm feeling anymore. Mm -hmm. I was able to go in and embrace it and allow those parts to heal and bring them back into the whole of me. And so they're not hiding away out there calling for help, leaving me feeling despairing and helpless. Yeah. It's just a very different life I live now. And it's all because of competent, real help doing deep medicine work. You say it's not the easy path. Do you think there is an easy path? Right? I don't think so. I mean, if we're dealing with hard problems, it takes hard solutions, right? It's what we talked about before. It's that willingness to be uncomfortable. And whenever I go into a medicine work session, because I still do them, I'm always nervous. I'm always anxious. I used to literally be shaking like this. It was just like terror. And it was everything I could do to get myself to take the medicine and move into it. And now I'm usually more just anxious. Um, but it's always my psyche knows I'm going into stuff that it's trying to protect me from. It's always that. And that's how I know that my intentions are pointed in the right direction. I wanted to ask, what do you think of this sort of new wave of online ketamine therapy, which I feel like is sort of being advertised as the easy way in the psychedelic yeah, space? Yeah, I have so many thoughts. So... <laughs> I am vehemently opposed to any <laughs> form of psychedelic telehealth that's mm. only put on by people that either don't know what it is they're offering or that don't care. And, mm. you know, take-home ketamine is problematic on so many fronts. One, you're not going to be in an environment and with the proper support, you know, some asshole on your laptop talking you through it is not going to be helpful <laughs> if things get hard. It's just Half not. the time you don't even have that. Yeah. yeah, it might be on your phone, you know, talking through the speaker. But ketamine has, you know, tries to get downplayed, but ketamine has a real potential to be psychologically addictive. Totally. I know strong, intelligent, deeply self-aware people that have developed problems with ketamine because it's such an easy place to go hide for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I work with ketamine very regularly, layered with other medicines in my psychedelic medicine work. And so that's like once a month, I'm either using ketamine or GHB in that role. Low dose or high dose? There's a big difference between those two as well. It's yeah. usually pretty high dose. Encephalated, I'll do between 200 and 250 milligrams, which is enough yeah, to a full dissociative you know, knock dose. out the average elephant. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you layer it with something that's highly speedy, it's got an amphetamine quality like uh, MDMA, then it tones the MDMA down, the MDMA keeps you awake, and it uh, allows you to work with the MDMA without that intense speediness. Mm -hmm. They spin you up into your head instead of keeping <laughs> you down in your body. And so it's a powerful way to work. It's something you want to work your way up to. When I first tried ketamine, I did a single sublingual lozenge and it uh, was like 100 milligrams. And so maybe I got 20 milligrams of that um, mm -hmm. absorbed and it freaking just knocked me out. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. just like, yeah. and now I can encephalate 200 milligrams and stay conversational. And it's not mm -hmm. so much building a tolerance to it, but it is an ability to navigate it. So again, I can let go and just be swept away by it or I can sit up and I can look you in the eye and talk to you. And so it's mm -hmm. just being able to navigate the medicine, but sending that home with people, you know, people are 
are more likely to say, yeah, I'm getting a great result in order to keep the prescription coming, you know, so yeah. that they have that available to them and it becomes a place to hide and there's not mm -hmm. really processing happening. And there's a big confusion between symptom management of depressive symptoms. You know, you go into a clinic and they stick in an IV and it's just this horrible environment to be doing any kind of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Air, fluorescent lights above, a doctor comes in every 20 minutes and shines a light bulb in your eyes. There's no compassion. There's no holding space. People for a little while get reprieved from their depression or their suicide ideation, but they have to keep coming back. And so it's really little better than an antidepressant mm -hmm. and it can develop a psychological addiction. So used in that way, used as a little more than an antidepressant, I am not a fan at all. And I think that it's very exploitive of people looking for help, but mm -hmm. using low to moderate doses of ketamine in a therapeutic setting to open you up, to help you speak more honestly with and more freely. Skilled practitioner. With a skilled practitioner, that's very powerful. Or using it in deep medicine work, that's very powerful. And so it's all about how it's used. All these medicines, it's about how they're used and the intentions and the understanding of the people that are offering it. A lot of the people offering these ketamine clinics are offering take-home ketamine via telemedicine. They don't really understand it. They just heard that it does good things and it's a great way to get a subscription base and you know so people are paying you <laughs> monthly for this service where you just mail them this stuff and so they don't really know or care what it's really doing for anyone they, it's yeah. big pharma on a little scale it's mm -hmm. just the same old it's the same old thing. i think it's yeah. pretty much uh, exclusively an okay place to pay a lot of money for a safe recreational supply of ketamine <laughs> <laughs> if you're getting it for depression it's probably not going to be great i think i've read the average is like one to two weeks typically for symptom alleviation on ketamine and so it's yeah. you know you don't have to take it every day like an ssri but you do have to take it every week close to it yeah. you have to keep it up and well people start also getting the side effects over time yeah. you know because ketamine mm -hmm. can be hard on the kidneys after a while the bladder yeah it can really cause like your eyes to dry out there's downsides to regular use of ketamine even yeah. low dose but it's you know your mind learning that this is a place to go for relief while you're mm -hmm. in it it's an escape that sucks people in and even me who just uses it every few months if i'm just kind of bored and anxious one evening so i don't really like watching tv too much anymore <laughs> my brain will start going well ketamine and i'm like no. <laughs> but it sneaks in it is it's insidiously yeah. sneaky and it's really really powerful and you have to watch it you mentioned ghb could you speak to that a little bit and the differences between that experience and ketamine when you're using it in this layered way um sure yeah ghb is a newer addition to my psychedelic toolkit and i started exploring it by itself and i found that it gave me access to emotional states that are usually very difficult for me to get to in a powerful, powerful way. So mm -hmm. I would like do a low dose and I'd take a hot bath and I'd just be singing. And for some reason, I really want to sing <laughs> on GHB. I'd just put on some music and sing. But I found that it gave me access to sadness in ways that, and sadness is just something that's always been very, very difficult for me to have access to. And so I decided I would experiment and I took a, a, a solid, moderate dose, not enough to knock me out and you gotta be super careful, <laughs> mm -hmm. but enough that I was definitely altered and then I put on like a sad movie. I think the first one I did was A Fault in Our Star. And I cried <laughs> like a baby. I just had these giant giant tears coming down and I'm just sobbing and I'm like oh my god this is incredible and it feels amazing. It feels amazing this needs to be let out. And so I'm like okay I'm going to take this into medicine work and so I would take GHB along with MDMA or 3MMC maybe I would layer in some mushrooms and that would be the journey right? And um, so GHB acted in the same way of toning down the amphetamine but allowing the heart opening. It, it, it does the toning down without dampening the emotional field. And so mm. it would open me deeply and I would get
get access to stuff that I didn't have access to before. And so it was really a powerful, powerful experience. You know, GHB can also make you just all kinds of horny. And so you just got to be mindful <laughs> of the energy that's moving through you. Yeah, GHB is, uh, my experiences with GHB have been uh, not great because usually unaware. That's usually, I think uh, most people's experience with GHB is typically that one. Well, so it's interesting to hear it. Like it was. Yeah, as like, a, as like a date rape drug, because that's kind of the, the context that GHB has yeah. in the world at large. So hearing it yeah. used in this context is really fascinating. It acts pretty similar to alcohol, right? Like a high dose of alcohol or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gabergic. It's super dangerous if it's mixed with any other kind of depressant. And mm -hmm. it's super dangerous to take too much. Yeah. You can take enough to counter the MDMA, but if the MDMA wears off first, you could be left with enough GHB in your system to be dangerous. And so you really mm. need to know what you're doing. You need to work with a practitioner that's familiar with it. And so far, I am the only person I have been able to come across that I know that is using it in this way. Yeah, yeah you're the first I've heard. <laughs> and it's um it is a powerful powerful medicine for going deep and opening doors that are otherwise closed off that mdma by itself wouldn't get into that ketamine and mdma wouldn't get into all of a sudden it's just a different shaped key that opened things that gave me access to areas that i didn't even know were there it was really an opening and healing experience working with it and it's just like all psychedelics but more than some it just needs to be used very mindfully you can't mix it with a glass of wine later in the night even even hours later you can't mix it with any kind of depressant. Yeah, and you got to be really careful if you're on any meds. It's a very powerful medicine. I think it's one that maybe will get explored more in the future, but it's the date rape aspect that just kind of makes Yeah, people... there's a negative connotation to it. But like all yeah. of these substances, there are bad uses and there are good uses. It's sort of the yeah. context that comes with them. Yeah, I mean, it's not these particular medicines. It's just how people have abused them. Yeah, rohypnol is a benzo, same yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. So to someone listening to this podcast that maybe struggles with depression or anxiety and they're listening to all these different substances they want to try something what they're doing isn't working like where do they start what psychedelics do they get started with or where do they look for or... this is an important question you guys have just some really good questions today and i appreciate it it's not the generic softballs i often <laughs> um so recently in the news you probably heard about the alaskan airline pilot who was mm -hmm. riding in the jump seat you know he was just getting a ride home so he got to sit in the cockpit and he had been struggling with depression and a couple of days before he had taken some mushrooms and I haven't heard the detail again because I don't watch a lot of news I don't watch much news at all but I was really wagering that he had bought into the psychedelic cheerleading movement that is so pervasive in social media that this is just a fix-all for everything it's just the nonsense that happens when anything gets into social media right yeah. and I was willing to bet a large sum of money that this guy was trying to self-treat depression and he ended up having a psychotic break because of it mm -hmm. rare but very mm -hmm. possible you know the psychotic break is just the intensity emotions are coming up are so strong the mind's looking for anything to make it stop right there, mm -hmm. there's this internal struggle and he doesn't have the support he needs so if you're going to explore psychedelics as a way to treat emotional health challenge mental health challenge you need support for it at a minimum you need a really good trip sitter that knows to shut the hell up and not try to play <laughs> better is to have somebody that is psychiatric health informed trauma informed they know what they're doing you know more of a 
medicine guy, but that's harder to find. And more expensive. Exploring on your own is very dangerous, can be very dangerous. Um, I tried to lay out in the book what this really looks like. So somebody, if they were going to explore on their own, would at least be informed in what this can look like. And so if big emotions do start coming up, they don't register it as a threat to their life and panic and do something really bad, really stupid. MDMA is usually pretty safe. MDMA is a safe way to explore and get self-awareness. But again, while you're not likely to have something scary happen on the trip in the days and weeks afterwards, you can have big emotions moving. And mm -hmm. it's just being aware that that's a thing. That's called the integration period. And you can open things that feel beautiful and it feels like such a relief to finally own it and look at it in a different way. But then your psyche can be trying to shut that down and you can have waves of big waves of anxiety, big waves of fear, big waves of sadness. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to know to keep it all in context. And so going into any amount of using psychedelics by yourself or with others as a as a means of healing needs to be really well informed. And again, that's the whole reason I wrote the book is I wanted people to be informed and to understand what they're getting into, what it's going to look like and what to watch out for. Yeah, I liked how you mentioned that it's a lot like taking three steps forward and two steps back a lot of times. Like yeah. on psychedelics, you can think something like, oh, I deserve happiness. And it feels like the most profound thought that you've ever <laughs> felt. And it feels that way because you realize you've never allowed yourself to think it before or like really internalize it. But it then- from a very different place, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then a week later though, right? <laughs> then it's like, okay, well, I realized I'm hating myself again, <laughs> you know, and, and I can yeah. kind of like look at that objectively. I can try to analyze it and using my insights from psychedelics, I can try to move through it or, or try to get rid of it. But it's that that's the part that I think people don't really realize a lot of times. And, you know, I also have not read the Alaskan Airlines pilot story, so I can't speak to that either. But when the sensationalism of psychedelics is sold to the masses as do this once and you'll finally be cured of this burden you've had your entire life yeah. two days later can feel so depressing when mm. you realize that that is not the case <laughs> and so mm -hmm. i think that's such an important part of your book that throughout this you're uncovering different traumas different behaviors that you want to change in your life having these profound insights and then having to spend your sober time trying to figure out how to make them a reality they don't just become a reality in your life Right. Yeah. Sort of like you've had this glimpse of like, I can be happy, but mm -hmm. I don't feel it now, but I know that it's possible. And then the work that comes exactly. after that is trying to come back to that space again, which takes a long time, takes a lot of work. The ideal in working solo is that no matter what's coming up, you always have this awareness that I'm in my home, I'm totally. safe, nothing's happening, even though I might be feeling fear, or I might be feeling something, this is just moving. Yeah. And so it's just that conscious yeah. awareness is kind of the difference between a beautiful release and a really challenging trip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so just kind of like a last question, kind of wrap it all around. I, or let's yeah. say wrap it up. Um, <laughs> wrap, it up. wrap it around. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned that you're you're still doing medicine work around like a monthly schedule. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that's a maintenance work now or do you find that you're still diving deeper into the layers? And and as a follow-up, how, how important do you think that continued medicine work is? Again, good questions, man. I'm enjoying <laughs> this. I'm enjoying this talk with you guys today. I genuinely, it's, it's a good one. It's yeah, gone. It's, it's gone in ways I would never have predicted. And hopefully- <laughs> It's hopefully, a good trip. Hopefully my yeah, book isn't removed trip. from Amazon afterwards, yeah. but- uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I've outraged somebody somewhere, but you know, hopefully yeah. they'll take that as a point to grow. Well, but, yeah, I think if they've been listening to the conversation, if they're angry about it, maybe they should figure their shit it's out. Kind 
I look point. inward a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, I continue to do medicine work because there are still aspects of me that are asking to heal, but mm -hmm. there are many places I could have stopped along the way and just said, hey, you know what? I'm feeling pretty complete with this. Things are so much better. They're not perfect. They're not going to be for anybody. I'm a human being and everybody, nobody comes through life without being bruised, right? Nobody comes mm -hmm. through life without being wounded in their own way. And, but for me, I'm truly driven to see where it can go. Mm -hmm. And I just find that I'm a fantastic guinea pig for this experimentation. You know, I, I work with really qualified support and I just keep going deeper. And if there's a day where I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of feeling done, I'm, then I'll be done. But I'm actually looking to take those experiences in a different direction. I leave, what is today, Tuesday? I leave on Thursday for a couple of weeks in Peru and I'm doing this extended ayahuasca retreat, multiple nights of doing ayahuasca with authentic shaman from, you know, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of jokers down there that, you know, a lot of Americans that went down and had a big ayahuasca experience and they sold their house and bought some Peruvian property and put on the shaman hat and offer it now. And you, you want to avoid those like the plague. Yeah. We're um, about to release a whole episode on those actually. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But there are authentic, really well held ayahuasca experiences. And my, my own medicine guide has been encouraging me to go out and have these different experiences. There's a possibility I may decide to start the education process to becoming a medicine guide myself at some point in the future. I, I, I don't know yet, but I, I kind of feel pulled in that direction. And I've done the deep work part of what would qualify for me to be able to do that. I could hold a deep space for somebody, but there's a lot more I need to know. Mm -hmm. um, but for many people, they would have stopped way before now and hung out their shingle and started offering it. And if I'm going to do it, I want to <laughs> make sure that what I'm offering is of authentic benefit. Absolutely. So I continue to do the work. I continue to explore and to learn. And it's always a learning process. If it stops being a learning process, like a profound learning process, I'll probably stop doing it. I'll mm -hmm. almost certainly stop doing it. But now I'm starting to explore. And so I want to go do this ayahuasca experience. Um, there's some folks in Mexico. I may go and work with San Pedro, some mescaline uh, on oh, cool. a, a very authentic experience. And there's also some 5-MeO-DMT experiences you can have in the desert out there that are profound and would be different than my normal 5-MeO-DMT experience. And I might go to Africa and work with Iboga there as well with mm -hmm. the indigenous cultures that have been doing this for a very long time just to have the experience of what that energy is like that their generations have cultivated, right? And what can I learn mm -hmm. from that? Not trying to steal what they have, but just how will that affect me and affect how I would sit for someone else? Mm -hmm. And so right now it feels like my life is moving in the trajectory of eventually becoming a medicine guide myself when I feel and I know in my heart that I can hold a safe and authentic space for someone to do it. Well, that's the kind of person I would want to be a medicine guide. So that's awesome. I'm happy to hear that. That, is, that <laughs> is the kind of person you should seek out if you want someone to do real deep work with you. It's, yeah. a, it's a very different thing and they are exceedingly rare. And I just, I feel such heartbreaking gratitude that I've been able to meet some of them and work with them. Yeah. I feel like when you first try psychedelics, you don't realize how many other people have intensely studied them and learned from them and learned about them. And so you just yeah. think like, oh my God, like I'm one of the only people in the world that does psychedelics. So I need to figure out how to share it with everyone. That's the exactly. generous, that's the generous understanding of what happens, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> just like that. There, there are some <laughs> less generous understandings too that happen sometimes. But if your guide has never in their life said, I'm not ready yet, then they're probably not going to be a very qualified guide, right? 
Like exactly. that's, that's super important that you're willing to say like, yeah, I think that'd be a cool thing to do right now, but, uh, I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to be able to hold that space in that way. And in the, the way that humble I'm, dedication that we need yeah. to look for. Yeah. I think, um, the people who can offer this, you know, cause they're like, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I can't do social media. I just can't. I pay somebody to, a yeah. social media manager to do all the other platforms for me. Cause I just can't, it's just soul sucking for me, but I do some LinkedIn and there are just so many people self-promoting they're like well i am the sutures that hold the womb closed so that the person can heal themselves and i am this and it's i am rough that. on linkedin they're yeah. making <laughs> they're making claims well i'm a best-selling this and i'm a that and it's just not true but it's all self-promotion right it's about them getting to feel special and there's mm -hmm. a time in my life where that could have easily been me you know if this mm -hmm. would have this would have come around when i was in my 30s i could have easily been that mm -hmm. but you know until i can just selflessly be there for another human being to let their own internal healer help them heal and all I'm doing is energetically and physically keeping them safe that's when I'll be prepared to be a psychedelic guide if that day ever comes and it's just mm. I'm, I'm not willing to do it one minute sooner yeah well thank you so much Shannon this has been so yeah, incredible thanks for having obviously me. I, I really appreciate your your openness and just this has been such a great talk obviously everyone needs to go and read coming full circle healing trauma with psychedelics where else can people find you what other work do you have out there i know that you have present moment awareness which is another great book about living in the present moment and would probably tie nicely with this book but what other work do you have out there that we can point people to you know my uh, first book was 20 years ago present moment awareness and if somebody's just getting started in the process of self-awareness and the process of wanting to heal it might be a, a great tool for them to utilize because it's just full of exercises it's really really simple it's really meant to be basic and then i didn't have anything else to say for like 20 years and then you know i felt like <laughs> And coming full circle so i wrote that that's the body of my work i've i've got an app that goes along with present moment awareness that's free it's called the focus tool and it's just about mm -hmm. uh, reminding you it kind of alerts you randomly throughout the day so it reminds you and you can put in your own messages but it just reminds you to focus back in on what's important get out of your head mm -hmm. get out of your anxiety get out of your stress and remember what's important and so people can download that Didn't if you they say want. in the book that you started that with pagers the original focus tool was its own physical device you know it's before mm -hmm. smartphones it was before any of that, right? So it was this little wow. triangle shaped thing and it had a belt clip and it would just, uh, you pop a battery in it and it would go off randomly between 20 minutes and two hours apart. And whenever it went off, you would just stop and do your exercises from the book. You take a deep breath. What do you feel? What do you see? What do you hear? You just really just kind of check in with yourself what you're feeling, what meaning is that feeling giving? What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just trying to yeah. cultivate. It's just a way to practice. It's an easy way to practice developing and cultivating self-awareness and self-honesty. So um, I like that. Yeah, you know, I haven't had those physical devices for a long time, but people would email me about them before I re-released <laughs> the book for the 20th anniversary. So I had this uh, app developed and so it's free. There's a premium upgrade you can get for like $3 a year or something. It's just, it's just <laughs> meant to be accessible. But all that does is just give you the ability to have more messages, a few more bells and whistles, mm -hmm. but you don't need it. The free version is great. Um, mm -hmm. You can find me on shannonduncan.com. I really don't do much with that website, but it's got <laughs> links to everything and you can kind of see what I got going on. LinkedIn's the only social media platform that I personally engage in, and that's that's uh, kind of rare, but I'll go in and share thoughts once in a while because there are really good people in the psychedelic scene there, and I like communicating mm -hmm. with them. That's how I ended up getting in contact with you guys was through that <laughs> social media presence and through Sophie, my social media manager. Mm, yep. She's great. Yeah, we just released she, an episode with her yesterday. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, Sophie's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Love Sophie. Yeah, yeah. she's uh, she's really good at, at, um, at allowing me to not have to engage 
age and the uh, most social media is fine. It's some people it's like a nightmare. It, it's fine, but it's I, a nightmare. It's, it's not, yeah, not like it at all. So um, that's that's really where I'm at. The book's on Amazon. There's a uh, print book. There is an audio book that I recorded. I went into the studio and did the recording for that. And if you've never done that before, it is exhausting. Oh my god! No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, and then there's also a uh, an ebook version. And there's um, different kinds of ebooks. So wherever you get your ebooks from, it's probably available. We'll link all that below as well. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So that's that's really it. That's that's where I'm at. That's uh, I don't really try to promote myself. I'm just trying to promote the message that mm-hmm. you know safe help is available and you need to know how to find it. And that's that's what the book is for. And that's what these podcasts are for. So it's really about the work. Awesome. We appreciate your effort. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a really great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for yeah, having me, guys. Really, really enjoyed one. this talk, Shannon. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. And that's another episode of the Trip Sitter Podcast. You can support Shannon's work by buying his book, Coming Full Circle, Healing Trauma with Psychedelics. Speaking of support, this project is relying on the support of our fans. If you dig what we're doing and want to help us to keep doing it, head on over to our Substack, tripsitter.substack.com, and sign up to become a premium member to help support the show. If you want to support us without giving away cash, you can like, share, and review this podcast and sign up for our free newsletter. All of those things really do help to support our work. This episode of the Tripsetter Podcast was co-hosted by Justin Cook, Rowan Zioli, and Jay Gordon Curtis. Jay Gordon Curtis also co-edits this podcast along with Ronilo Villamore and is the producer. As always, we want to end with a reminder. There's no such thing as a bad drug. They're just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist within our world. It's our relationship with them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Until next time, have a safe trip.